So we are going to be uh, in Hosea yet again. Uh, we're in chapter 11. We're going to do most of chapter 11 today. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, we're going to have the verses up on the screen. Uh, I wanted to begin, though, by telling you uh, about one of uh, our favorite shows, uh, Don and I, uh, something that we watch fairly often, uh, which is a show called All Creatures Great and Small. Do you know the show? If you love animals, there's lots of animals in there. Uh, it's about a vet, uh, James Ariot. He actually wrote novels based on his sort of life as a vet in uh, England in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, so it's just one of those uh, shows from Britain that uh, is filled with great character development and all that kind of thing. One of the characters is called Mrs. Hall. Uh, Mrs. Hall is the housekeeper. She's a young widower. And over the course of the show, uh, you've, you've come to realize that she's uh, somehow estranged from her son. And uh, we've never met her son, but she's written him letters. He never writes back. And so in the recent episode that we watched, they, they finally met. Her son finally wrote to her. He had joined the Navy. Uh, it was, you know, war is brewing. And so he thinks he may not come back. He's going off to war. And so he thinks we should meet. So they meet at a train station, and uh, it's very tense. Uh, when she arrives, uh, she's, she's eager but very nervous. When he arrives, he's very cold, very standoffish. And the whole kind of dramatic tension of the scene is, why? What is it that's gone on between this mother and her son that is just so difficult for them to just be in the same room together? And finally, the answer comes out. Years ago, uh, the son had committed a crime, a serious crime, and the police had come to the mother asking for information, and instead of lying uh, for him, she told the truth, and he went to jail. And ever since that, that moment, he's, he's been hard-hearted. He says in the episode, look, all those years in prison, they, they were my best years. They stole everything from me. He's just, you can tell the anger is right there on the surface. But it was interesting, watching the scene, I would say that the mother actually had more tension within her, more anguish within her. And you can understand why. T to be a parent and have a child in that situation, uh, to have committed a crime, and now you're in the position of, of do, you, do you hand them over to the authorities so that justice can be served, or do you lie for them? Do you, do you just allow them to continue on in a life of lawlessness? It's, it's a situation with no good answers, and there's incredible tension that would, that would tear any parent's heart apart. You may not realize it, but God's own heart has the same tension within it, uh, all the way through the book of Hosea, in fact, all the way through the Old Testament. And in our passage today, he's going to reveal that heart as he tries to decide what to do with his own son, Israel, uh, not just a criminal, but wayward in, in so many ways. So we're going to see this, this tension within God, and it's, it's astounding, the window we get into his own wrestle with this issue. So we're going to walk through our text in three parts, and I've titled each part. So here's part number one, uh, which I've called the confusion of a rebellious son. And so we're going to begin uh, in verse one of chapter 11. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Uh, we'll pause there. 
Uh, I don't know if you, well, you probably remember at the beginning of Hosea, that the main metaphor that God used to describe himself and his people was that of a, a marriage. Um, there was him, the husband, and uh, Israel, the wife, or the unfaithful wife. So here the metaphor is kind of shifted to one that we see a lot in the Bible, which is uh, God as the father and Israel as the son, his people as the son or the disobedient son. And these verses read, you know, like a dad who's reminiscing about his child. Uh, they're heavy hearted though. You get the sense that this would be a father whose uh, child, whose son had made some bad decisions in life. And he's kind of reminiscing back to the early days when the, when the relationship was, was tender and intimate. He talks about like a father teaching his child to walk, leading him by the arm. Verse 4, you get this imagery of, uh, of a father easing the yoke on his uh, son, like easing the burden and, and feeding him. But unfortunately, those days, those days didn't last. Before long, there were some very big problems in this relationship between, between God the Father and Israel the Son. And what we see in this passage is that those problems are really rooted in the the lack of clarity that Israel has about their father. They don't seem to really know actually what kind of a father they have. So look, look at verses 1 and 2 again. God says, when, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. Now, I'm not sure about you, but uh, I've seen this uh, behavior in young children especially. We probably all have. At the mall, at the park, you'll see a little toddler running, just booking it towards the busy street, and the parent running after them, calling after them, don't, wait, don't go, and they're looking back. They're like, this is the best freedom. Finally, the oppressive tyranny is over. I'm, gonna, I'm gone, right? They're running as fast as The parent, though, is just, you know, grief. Wait, don't, it's dangerous. The child has no idea, right? The child is totally misunderstanding the situation. They don't know the danger that they're heading towards. They don't know that all the screaming from the parent is actually love. They don't know because they're very, they're very young children. They don't know any better. But Israel, Israel is exhibiting the same behavior, but they should have known better. The text says, um, God says, out of Egypt, I called my son which is a, a reference, a reminder to one of the initial calls of God. For Israel, it was out of slavery in Egypt. And at that time, uh, once they got to the Red Sea, all the plagues happened, they walked through the, the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army was coming after them, the water crashed down, they were saved. At that point, you know, Israel was very glad to hear the voice of God. I mean, they recognized, if you, if you look in Exodus, they're singing, there's rejoicing, they, I mean, they're praising God, they're so glad to have heard his voice, to have listened to his voice, and to be saved. But now things seem very different. Now when God calls them out of slavery to their own sin, they begin to hear his voice differently. His voice uh, sounds maybe restrictive, kind of, kind of oppressive. They seem to have forgotten the heart of God. The, the, the tenderness, the eagerness to hear his voice is totally gone. They don't seem to know God the way they did before. And verse 3 makes this uh, even clearer. Look at verse 3. God says, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. So there must be a significant like, blind spot in Israel's mind and heart if they don't know that God is the one who's bringing good into their life. Uh, and it sounds a lot like uh, Hosea chapter 2. We've seen this a couple times throughout this book. Uh, here's chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, in this case, God is referring to Israel like a, like a wife, so the pronoun is female. 
he says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So again, Israel doesn't seem to understand uh, who God is and that he cares for them, that he's doing all these good things in their life. And this misunderstanding, this confusion causes huge problems in the relationship. And you see this uh, problem in human relationships. There are times when, when a parent and a child are just at odds. There's, there's no sense of connection or intimacy. And it can happen for different reasons. Uh, on the part of the parent, sometimes it can happen because a parent is, is oppressive, is harsh with their discipline, is unloving or neglectful, and so that the child draws away. Whenever this parent speaks, they're, they're filled with dread, filled with fear. They, they don't want anything to do with the parent. But it can happen the other way, too, uh, where uh, the parent is, is being loving, is being gracious, disciplining, certainly, but in a reasonable way, but the child is rebellious. And so in the child's heart, they want nothing to do with the parent. Any time that the parent speaks, uh, they consider it to be harsh or oppressive, and so they, they draw away. And that seems to be the situation with Israel. In their sin and in their pride and, and idolatry, they'd gotten the idea that, that God was harsh, that he couldn't be trusted. And so they ignored his voice. Whenever God would speak, trying to warn them of the danger. They would just keep running in the, in the opposite direction. And this, this disconnect, this confusion is devastating for faith. It's very hard to trust God when you don't really know him, who he is. Uh, Puritan John Owen, uh, I came across this quote. I think it's helpful. Kind of says it in a very concise way. He says, so long as the father, as God, is seen as harsh, judging, and condemning, the soul is filled with fear and dread every time it comes to him. But when God, who is father, is seen as a father, filled with love, then the soul is filled with love for God in return. So he's basically saying, look, the way that we relate to God has everything to do with how we see him, how we understand God. And so it's a good question for us to consider, especially if we're, for someone who professes faith. How, how do I actually see God? It's a little hard sometimes to know that, like, to con like, what does that mean? How do I see God? So a good test is to think of how you respond when you hear God's voice. Like when you're reading the Bible and there's certain things that, you know, would, would push into the way that you're living, how do you, how do you receive that? Uh, what happens in prayer when you feel a sense of conviction in your, in your conscience? Are, are you, do you receive that willingly or do you push back on it? What happens when there's someone in your life who's just speaking into your life in a biblical way. You know they're saying what the Bible says. Do you, do you resist that? Do you welcome that? All of your response, it, it's really rooted in, in how you see God. And honestly, this is, this is one of the most important questions uh, that we have for our faith, of whether we're going to grow in faith or grow in intimacy with God. Because the truth is, I mean, if we are a Christian and we're spending any time in the Bible, we can read a lot of things about God, but it doesn't mean that we actually believe them to be true. Like, we can read that God's going to work all things, you know, together for our good, but, but if we don't really think that he is always good towards us, it's going to be hard for us to actually live in that, like to trust him in that. And the problem with that kind of mistrust is that it tends to fuel uh, the fires of rebellion, that it it's very difficult to submit to God if we, don't really, if we don't really trust him. 
So this is the confusion of a rebellious son or rebellious daughter. This is the confusion of Israel and the reason why the relationship is so fractured, so frayed. But here's part two. The heart of a conflicted father. In the rest of the passage, we basically get God's response uh, to his son's rebellion, and we see God's heart pulled in two different directions, towards justice and towards mercy and grace. And he begins with the justice. So here's verses five uh, to seven. God continues, they, Israel, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. This is pretty much in keeping with what we've seen throughout Hosea. Right? Through Hosea, we've seen a lot of, of uh, judgment from God or promises of coming judgment from God. He's told them, you are in sin. He's warned them. Right? The Assyrians are coming. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be conquered. You're going to be carried off in exile. We've had uh, vivid portrayals of the intensity of the Assyrian army, the devastation that God's judgment will bring. We've seen a lot of that. But I'm not sure that we've really thought to ourselves of how God feels about this. I think we just assume that, you know, God's, this is, this is great. This is exactly what God wants to happen. But here we're, we're getting a window into whether, whether in fact this is what God actually wants. Here we're seeing the, the justice. So let me just ask you this. If you had a son who was guilty of a serious crime and was, and was standing before the judge, I mean, maybe he drove drunk, he smashed into another car, he, he killed people, he's, he's in serious trouble, it's a clear-cut case, and you're there in the courtroom, what, what would you want to have happen to your son? Would you be praying for a light sentence? Would you be praying for some technicality that he would be able to get off? What about the family that's there, whose loved ones have been killed? What, what do they deserve? There'd be this, this tension within you, wouldn't there, that that you'd have love for your son, and so of course you'd, you'd want him to, to find some way to get free, but there'd be this moral sensibility that you would, you would want justice to be done. This is, this is the predicament that we see here. This is God's predicament. But it's even more intense, because he isn't just the father, he's also the judge. And he's not just any judge. He is, he is the Supreme Court justice of the entire universe. Like the integrity of the law itself is, is based on God being able to judge justly every single time. And so he's pulled. I mean, Israel is clearly guilty, not just of murder, but of committing vile acts of, of sexual and spiritual bondage and worship to false gods, all these things that are leading them, taking their soul directly to hell and anyone with them that's going in the same direction. Israel was supposed to be like a beacon of light in a dark world. And yet what we see throughout the Old Testament is that they are willing instruments of darkness. So it's like, it's like an open and shut case. If you were just to look at the evidence, what else could God do as a good judge but to bring justice against his son? And that's what we see in these verses. It's the same thing we've seen through the entire book. Exile to the land of Assyria, destruction for the people, destruction of the cities, 
a deaf ear from God. I'm not listening anymore to your cries for help. You've had your chance. Perfect justice from a perfect judge. It's the right thing to do. But God just can't bring himself to do it. Look at verses 8 and 9. Look at what God says and how he says it. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Adma and Zeboim, uh, they were two of the cities that were destroyed when God uh, wiped out uh, Sodom and Gomorrah when he rained sulfur down because of this this wicked, sinful people. So what God is saying is, look, you were like them. You deserve the judgment that they got, but you're my my children. How can I give you up? How can I destroy you? We just have to step back for a moment and say, "This, this is amazing. Is it not to get this window into the conflict within God's own heart? as he's contemplating the justice that, that he must give as, as the judge of the universe? I mean, did you have any idea that this was going on in God's heart throughout the Old Testament back then? Do we even think that this is some of the conflict that exists in God's own heart today as he thinks of us in our sin? Most children, I think we'd agree, are, are pretty oblivious to the fact that their parents are actual people, you know? We don't really think as kids that our parents are worried about anything or thinking about anything, have emotions. And I think it's kind of similar with God. But here we're reminded of the fact that God is, he's not just some, you know, impersonal, divine, spiritual force in the sky. He's a being with personhood, with emotions. And these verses take us deep into the truth about his nature and his character. And it's incredible. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is the best. Verse 9, he says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Why? Why why won't you do it? For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. What he's basically saying is, look, I'm not going to do this because I'm not like you. I'm, I'm God. I'm holy, which is really interesting because usually when we think of the holiness of God, uh, it's talking about a distinction, right, between like sinful humanity and the righteousness of God. Uh, when we say something is holy, God, he's set apart from the, the corruption of the world. Usually, uh, holiness means like a moral standard of perfection. That's just pure and righteous and high. But here we're seeing another aspect of God's holiness, that there's a distinction between the, the love of human beings and the love of God. And if we stop and think about that, there's a very clear difference. I mean, think of how well we love people who don't love us. We're not great at it. Think about being in a relationship with someone who, who is unkind to you, who is neglectful, who is hurtful towards you. How, how long do we want to keep being in that relationship? Not just stay in that relationship. How, how long do we want to continue to pursue that person? in love, in grace, with vulnerability, want, trying to draw them into intimate relationship with us. That's, that's not how we love usually as human beings. But God's saying, I'm not like you. I'm God. I have an inexhaustible, eternal, gracious love that is constantly willing to pour out mercy even, even when all hope seems lost. 
Even when you as my children deserve nothing but my wrath. Verse 8, he says, my, my heart recoils within me at the thought of it. At having to do that. My compassion grows warm and tender. I mean, I'm not sure what you've thought about the book of Hosea so far, but this is a pretty incredible book that we would get this window into the God of the universe that here in the midst of all these promises of judgment, we get this powerful declaration of God's mercy and love. And he's not just saying it. Like he, he really means this. He will not come in wrath to bring destruction upon his children, even when we are acting like an unfaithful wife, even when we are acting like a rebellious son. He's going to wait for us, like on the porch, watching the horizon, just waiting for the day that we come back to him. And he's going to run out and wrap his arms around us, so glad, right, before we can even repent, he's already forgiving us, welcoming us back. That's his love. It's an enduring love. It's a love that endures the mocking and, and, and the suffering and the beatings so that we would have access to life. It's a love that responds in forgiveness every single time. If we actually understood this love, if we actually understood who our God is, then, then would we run away from him so much? You know, that was Israel's problem, right? He would, he would call and they would keep running in the other direction. This should be convicting us of, of the fact that there's a lots of times we, we just don't see God the way that he truly is. And that if we did, we wouldn't be scared. No matter what we've done, no matter what has been done to us, we would, we would always turn back. We would always turn back to him knowing that he would be gracious and loving. Because that's who he is. There is, however, a problem with this, this nature of God, this loving, this inexhaustible grace and this, and this mercy. Or rather, uh, there was a problem. There was a problem in the time of Hosea because the fair question would be, Okay, that's great. That's great, God. I'm so glad that you love me in this way. But, but what about justice? What about all the evil in the world? What about the mother who lost her family? And the judge is now saying, look, this is my son. I love him. I want to be gracious to him. He can, he can go free. She would stand up. Heart, but what, where's the justice? How, how can God maintain a sense of legitimacy as the perfect judge if he doesn't actually punish the guilty. So this, this brings us to a very real and very serious tension that hangs over the whole Old Testament, which is how, how can God be a perfect judge, always judging justly, and a perfect father, always showing grace? And if you look for it, you see this tension exists from beginning to end of the Old Testament. If you look at Adam and Eve, right? There's the promise of judgment. If you eat of the tree, you're... You're going you're to be punished. And when they do, there is some punishment. They're, they're kicked out of the garden. But as they go, God says, look, in one day, don't worry. Someone's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. He, he gives them a bit of hope right there in the midst of why they don't deserve that. Think of the flood. God looks at humanity, totally wicked, want nothing to do with him. He says, I'm going to wipe it out, but he saves a family. Not a sinless family, Right? A pretty good family, but still, they carry sin with them. Why, why the grace? Why the hope? Think of all the instances of God's judgment. There are some very sharp instances of God's judgment. He sends plagues upon his people. There's one time where his people are in sin. He just opens up the earth. Like an earthquake opens up, they fall in. And a whole bunch of people die. And God's saying time and time again, look, this is what happens. 
When you sin, just so you know, there's going to be judgment. But then there's sometimes when he shows grace to people he doesn't even know, like Nineveh, right? Jonah walks in reluctantly, says, look, you guys, God might come and judge you. What? They repent and God saves the whole lot of them? Why the grace? There's this tension, God. What is it? It's hard for us to know what you actually mean. And think of right now, at the time of Hosea, he's saying the Assyrians are coming. They do. They wipe the people out, take them off in exile. But then 70 years later, there's a remnant come back and they rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city. By the end of the Old Testament, the question is, God, which is it? How are you going to treat us in our sin? Justice or grace? It's this question hanging in midair as Malachi ends and there's no answer. In fact, for 400 years, God's people, there's, there's no answer. There's no more revelation, no more prophecy. And the heart of God's people grows colder and colder. Until, until one evening, in the skies above Bethlehem, Angels of God appear and they begin shouting from the heavens. And they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And they keep going, glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. How could there be peace? Because the Messiah has come. Because Jesus has come. Jesus, the one who was able to reconcile both the justice of God and the grace of God. Our third part is not actually in our text, but I hope you see that all of this leads us to part number three, which is the resolution of a perfect savior. The cross of Jesus is the answer that all of God's people have been waiting for throughout the Old Testament. And for us to understand how it actually works, how it answers this, this tension, we need to look to the book of Romans. Uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, writes the Romans, it's all this dense theology, but he's explaining some of the things that, that we, people were wondering about. So here's Romans 3, verses 22 to 26. We're just going to walk through it, and he's going to talk about this tension and, and how it's resolved. So, verse 22, he says, there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the justice. That is the sin. That's Israel. He's basically saying, look, in case you're unclear, every human being is in this category. Deserving of the judgment of God, all have fallen short, but it keeps going. And and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To be justified means to be declared righteous, like good, perfect. And so there's a tension there, right? Where sinners have fallen short of the glory of God, but also somehow we've been given this justification. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word propitiation uh, is a word we need to know. It's a technical word. Uh, It means wrath-bearing sacrifice. Uh, For the people, it would have been very clear because they knew how the temple worked. You'd bring an animal, you'd lay your hands, you, you would trust that your sins were transferred onto the animal, then you'd kill the animal. It would, it would bear the wrath of God in your place. And then they'd go on for a little while, they would be atoned in some sense. But the Bible makes clear that animals can't actually, can't actually atone for our sin. They're just animals. They were like placeholders for the sacrifice to come, who was Jesus. And here we see that he actually propitiated 
the wrath of God, meaning all of the justice, all of the anger, all of the judgment, the just judgment that is due towards everyone who is sinful, it was poured out on Jesus, not on us. So the justice of God would be fully expressed, but also the grace of God would be offered to all who believe in Jesus. And Paul goes on to explain how this resolves the tension from the Old Testament. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That was back then. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's saying, I know. I know back in the Old Testament, people were wondering, is this God righteous? Is he a good judge? How is this working? And God's saying, yeah, I passed over for a time, but I'm always the perfect judge. And I was waiting for the perfect time to express my justice completely, but to do it in a way that you would be spared. And so God is just, a good judge, but also the justifier. He's the one who gives grace and mercy and love. And it all happened because Jesus was who he was. Not just a man. He was God. He had the capacity to take on the infinite wrath of God for all of our sin. If he was just a man, it would never be possible. And when he did that, the justice was upheld and the grace was offered. Jesus became Adma and Zebuin in our place. He became the disobedient son so that we could share his true sonship. And then at the cross, this tension is finally resolved. And this section ends with just this, this fantastic description of God's voice then in his people's lives. In light, in light of this tension we see in Hosea. And look at how it's expressed. Verses 10 and 11. God says, They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So notice that same kind of tension, right? The roar of a lion is scary, ferocious. The, the, the children are trembling when they hear the voice of God. But where is he leading them? He's leading them home. He's leading them to a place of safety, a place of love, uh, where they want to go, which is a picture of heaven itself. And so in Hosea, you have this unresolved tension. But from our vantage point, on this side of the cross, we can see that it makes perfect sense. That there would be times when God's voice makes us tremble as he speaks you know, into areas of sin, but that he's leading us to a place where we'll have peace. And it all comes down to how we see God, our understanding of who he is, and the depth of his heart. And I thought a good way to kind of help us to just... Uh, settle this in our minds and heart would be to tell the story that I came across. Uh, this is a story, uh, Don and I do devotions in the morning uh, fairly often, and um, this is a story that was told in it, so I'm going to tell it to you. Uh, it's about a little boy, his name's George, and uh, his mother is telling the story. Uh, George's grandmother says to George, uh, George, I'm going to give you a, uh, a stamp album, a stamp collecting album for Christmas. This is like a long time ago, and that was a very exciting present, okay? George is very excited, right? I'm going to get a stamp, all my stamps. I can't wait. So uh, he's excited. Christmas comes and goes. Uh, Grandma lives far away, and nothing arrives in the mail. There's no, there's no stamp album. 
And the mother looks at George, notices he doesn't seem, you know, bent out of shape about it. And then a couple days later, he has his friends over and they're talking about their gifts. And George goes through all the gifts he gets and he, and he says, and I got an album for my stamps for my grandma. And the mom talks to him after, says, George, like, why did you, you didn't get an album from grandma. Why did you tell everyone you got an album from grandma? And he says, mom, if grandma says that I'm going to get an album, then it's as good as me having it. She says, okay, George. So they wait. Another month goes by, no album. Finally, the mom uh, comes to, you know, George and says, look, George, I'm sorry, but I think grandma might have forgotten to send you the album. And he says, no, no, she didn't. Mom says, okay, George, but there's no album here. He says, well, maybe it will help if I write a letter thanking grandma for the album. <laughs> Mom says, sure, you go, you go ahead, George. So he writes the letter, thank you, grandma, for the album, sends it off in the post. The letter comes back from grandma. Here's what she writes. My dear George, I have not forgotten my promise for you to have a stamp album. I could not find the one that you wanted here, so I ordered one from New York. It did not arrive until after Christmas, and it was not the right one. And then I ordered another one, but it still has not arrived. So I've decided to send you $30 instead so that you might buy the one that you want in Chicago, your loving grandma. To which George looked to his mo looks to his mom and says, See, I told you. I told you she hasn't forgotten. The story helps us to understand how seeing God in a certain way will make us behave in a certain way. George knew his grandma. Right? His, his conviction about the album that wasn't there was totally rooted in the fact that he, he knew who his grandma was. He knew the depth of her love. He knew that if she said, I'm going to send you an album, that she would. And a lot of our lives, I think, are spent wondering whether God is actually going to do what he says he's going to do because we're confused about who he is. And a text like Hosea, it, it reveals who he actually is in case we were unclear. He is a God committed to justice, but he's a God committed to grace and love. And he found a way, had planned a way from the beginning of the world so that the two would be reconciled, so that all of his promises in our lives could actually come true. And so this means that when we hear his voice, we don't have to run away, you know? I think there's lots of times where we hear the voice of God and we just don't believe that it's actually going to be for our good. Because a lot of the times, his voice sounds like a roar. I mean, especially if we are in sin and his voice is, is pressing into that sin. We are going to very quickly and easily turn. We're not going to want to hear it for all sorts of reasons that have everything to do with us and nothing to do with his intentions for us, which are good and loving. There's other times where he's calling us to step out into areas of faith which are totally unknown, totally uncertain, and we are filled with fear. And again, the answer is, is not what he's saying, but who is saying it. Right? He's our God. He loves us. He's for us. He's declared from thousands of years ago all the way up to the cross and to today, I'm for you. I can't stand the thought of bringing my wrath upon you. So I sent my son so that he would suffer. He did the thing every good father does, which is to ensure that his children will be blessed. And so in light of these truths, my hope for us as a people is that we would be eager to hear the voice of God, that we wouldn't be confused, and that we would submit ourselves to wherever he's leading. 
right? Trusting. He's for us. He loves us. He's working even now, even though there might be a gap, like young George, right? Waiting. But we can wait in faith. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a, what a gracious uh, word to us this morning to reveal your, your heart, your conflicted heart towards your, your children. And Lord, we confess that we are often in that position as disobedient children, as hearing your voice and, and wanting to run in the other direction. And so Lord, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to humble ourselves, uh, to, to see you clearly to see you in, in the words of scripture as you've revealed yourself, both in the Old Testament and the New. Jesus, to see that you came so that you would bear the, the wrath of God in our place. And in doing so, you would open up the doors to grace and life and, and all the promises of God. So I pray for each one here. First of all, that we would come to faith, that we would profess faith. We would see our need for you, Jesus. But also that as we walk in faith, we would not doubt your voice. We would not turn in, in, in pride and in stubbornness, whatever it might be, but that we would, we would respond full of faith because we know that you love us. We know that you're for us. Even if there are times of waiting, even if there are trials, even if there are difficulties, we know that they all come from your hand and so they must all be for our good. So please, Lord, help us to, to live that out by your grace and by your power. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.